Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. All right. Uh, my name's Ben Simon, and welcome to Simulcast. And I am very excited tonight to be joined uh, by Michaela Kolber, who uh, uh, we have been uh, working in parallel with Debriefing Academy for a little while and never getting the chance to meet. So it's just a delight to see you tonight. Michaela, how are you? Great. And thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's quite an honor to finally be in this podcast with you. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I finally yeah, made it. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to have a good chat. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Michaela is the director of the Simulation Center of the University Hospital Zurich, Switzerland, where she has been leading team research projects investigating interactions in acute settings and debriefings in healthcare for many years. Her particular research interest includes debriefing, psychological safety, and the social dynamics of speaking up across the authority gradient and across disciplines in healthcare. Uh, Michaela Kolbe's PhD is in psychology, and she is a faculty member of uh, at ETH Zurich, and she is co-chairwoman of the German Society for Promoting Simulation in Healthcare, and has published very widely in psychological uh, literature, healthcare and simulation journals, and books, and is associate editor of Advances in Simulation. And I can't thank you enough for being here tonight, Michaela. Thank you. So we are here to discuss the paper, Helping Healthcare Teams to Debrief Effectively, Associations of Debriefers' Actions and Participants' Reflections During Team Debriefings, with the lead author obviously being you, Michaela, and published in BMJ Quality and Safety Journal in July. So I'm going to, uh, if you'll bear with me, I'll try and paraphrase this paper quickly. Uh, and essentially what I got from it was that the authors argue that debriefing is important for learning and performance improvement, that it's frequently identified as challenging for debriefers, and that we have very little empirical evidence to really guide us through the conversational decisions that we make as debriefers. And so to try to help answer that question, the team observed and recorded 50 healthcare team debriefings involving three high-risk anesthetic scenarios used in SIM-based team training, and then used a coding system to identify, label, and analyze the relationship between the types of things debriefers and learners said with one specific hypothesis being that using an advocacy inquiry type question would be more likely to lead to a participant sharing their mental model or in some debriefing circles, their frame. And so using some pretty clever analysis techniques of these debriefings, the team found that yes, absolutely, using advocacy and inquiry was associated with participants sharing their mental model, but that it wasn't the only conversational route to get there. Am I summarizing really reasonably well? Have you got anything you'd like to clarify, Michaela? Deeply impressed. No, I think it's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Great. All right. Well, let's jump into some questions. So one of the things that really struck me early on in this paper was this beautiful and quite vivid metaphor of there being a, a debriefing being a black box that has never been studied. And it struck me as both kind of really true, but also very confronting. And I was curious, what did you mean specifically by that? Like you mean confronting in a way that it's kind of too harsh or too harsh of a statement? No, I mean confronting as in like a kind of delightfully unexpected truth that makes me rethink things. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, I think, well, my thinking was that 
Um, I think in the in the medical education and simulation community, there's like a like a growing awareness that debriefing is both important and challenging. And so, kind of depending on the respective setting, we want you know we want to strive to hold all learners in in high regard. All learners can be our peers. At the same time, we want to be honest and curious. So it's kind of the classic task versus relationship dilemma. And we also want to make sure there's kind of some transfer to, to the clinical environment. So I think it's kind of, it's a challenging task. And I've, I've seen, that's, at least that's my observation, I think that research on debriefing is really growing, in particular conceptual research. So from my perspective, more and more tools are being developed. And with respect to empirical research, I've seen research comparing different debriefing approaches like self-debrief versus instructor-led debrief. And so it's kind of to me like how we set up a debrief. And I'm coming from like a classic behavioral science background. So I'm trained to look at what is it that team members are actually doing when they are debriefing. And to me, that's a process. So I thought that there was like a missing perspective on what is actually going on in a debriefing, no matter how I set it up. Even if I say, you know, you do the debriefing with good judgment or you're using pearls or whatever, what is it that's actually going on and how how is the relationship between what we as debriefers are doing and with how the learners are reacting to it? That's kind of the black box, the confronting mm. one. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think for me, it really, uh, A, made me reflect on how we've had some wonderful, powerful models and theories that have relied on experience and uh a lot of experts with uh, vast amounts of conversational knowledge and expertise. Um, but I, yeah, I agree. We're kind of reaching this new phase in regards to the level of sophistication with which we're now approaching simulation research. And it was very exciting to see us, uh, the paper go through to that next level of working out how do we actually analyze and find the predictable relationships between the conversational choices that we make. Was there anything specifically for you that really motivated you to engage in this study in particular? Maybe I'm a nerd. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, 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 I think I was just really curious, you know, as I'm a trained psychologist and I think what we do as psychologists, we think very deeply about the way how we communicate and what are the, what are, what's the impact of the things that we do. So I've like, there's my intention why I'm engaging in certain kind of interventions. And I'm curious, how does it land with the learners? What are they doing in, in relation to what I'm doing? And I'm, you know, whenever I was participating in, in no matter what role in a debriefing, I was always trying to grasp what is going on and what's the impact of what I'm doing? Uh, what's the impact on the learners? And, you know, looking at that or through that observational lens, I just find this personally really fascinating. And in the last decades, um, the science of teams, of team interaction analysis has really evolved. Now there is such a thing which is called meeting science. So there's like a community of scientists just studying team meetings through a variety of, of research part paradigms. And I think they have fascinating results that are not like really visible just by looking at meetings. You have to study them in a particular way. And that's probably the nerd in me. I found that just really interesting and curious. Does it make sense? Oh yeah. I'm right there with you. Like, 
<laughs> I would love to dig into some of the meetings we've had and look at that from a scientific uh, perspective. Um, that sounds very, very cool. So uh, we'll have to have a follow-up uh, podcast about that one. Um, so if we then come back to that foundational question of how to debrief effectively, uh, your team took a, a pretty complex and quantitative approach to that in terms of figuring out some answers to that question and really hammering out some of the more predictable relationships between the types of questions that we might make. Are you able to take us through the basics of the coding approach that you used and, and how it can help us? Sure. So with consent, uh, we video recorded, um, we, we took videos of uh, 50 debriefings that just we just regularly did during our simulation-based training. So it's a simulated setting. And then we use these 50 um, debriefing videos to look at what happened during the debriefings. And we were trying to find a way of capturing the dynamics. So not just in hindsight, giving a number to the debriefing, but really trying to grasp what happened at this point in time and at that point in time. So we did not transcribe what was being said. Instead, we applied a coding system that we had previously developed for describing debriefing. So it's it's called Decode. And it, I think in terms of a system, you know, many of the in the audience might be familiar with the Dash. So that's a tool for looking at how effective a debriefing is. And what the raters do, they kind of um, judge the quality of certain kind of interventions. The decode is not kind of a rating system. It's more like a describing system. So we look at what is the, we, we sort of assign predefined behaviors to what the facilitators did, for example, ask a certain kind of question and what the learners did. For example, learner A shared his or her point of view. So we basically captured what, who said what, at what point in time during the debriefing. And as you, as you were alluding to, that's quite a, a complex thing. It's cumbersome. So you can't really do this manually. We used a special software that facilitates that. And then we ended up with around 18,000 coded debriefing events. Again, something that you cannot, <laughs> you cannot use a sheet of paper and then have a look at what, and to make sense of it. So, but these, these 18,000, um, debriefing events, they sort of captured almost everything the debriefers and the learners said or did, um, through our lens with the, with the decode. And then we statistically searched for significant patterns. So for example, certain kind of question response patterns. It's a so-called lag sequential analysis. So it looks at significantly occurring patterns of behavior. Uh, a certain kind of question is significantly more or less by chance followed by a certain kind of response, for example, by, from the learner. And we, because we were interested in how can we as debriefers facilitate reflection during debriefings, we looked at the reflection of the learners. So we tried to find um, like sample behaviors um, signaling that the learners are reflecting and we coded reflection whenever the learners sort of explained their thinking or shared a mental model, um, voiced a, a conclusion like I'm taking away X, Y, and Z of this debriefing. 
or an action plan. So next time I'm going to be in that situation, I'll try to do this and that. So these four behaviors. Um, so yeah, that's basically, that's basically the methods. Uh, and as you can imagine, we did not finish that within one week. It's, it's not a career advice to ever do this. <laughs> It, it was remarkable that, yeah, just looking at both the sort of, and you, you name it in the paper as being an exhaustive process, and that's part of the discipline of it, is that right? That you do need to code uh, the entire conversation quite explicitly uh, for the authenticity of the data as well in the analysis? Yes. So there's no way of just coding uh, the things that you're looking for because then you cannot run the, 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 the analysis. So you really need to capture the, everything that's being said to be able to, to find these patterns. That's what makes it so, um, so intense. <laughs> you really need a lot of, so we didn't do this all by on our own. We had about, um, three master level students who helped us with this, uh, and a PhD. Uh, or I think it was a postdoc student at this time. So we had a lot of help, um, and this is something probably why this type of research is not being done uh, all the time, although I think it's fascinating, obviously. But it's just a lot of work. It's just really a lot of work. Yeah, it, it was quite astounding to me. And I guess uh, it, it also makes me think, you, you mentioned the dash. And I guess one challenge I've had with a lot of the ways we've tried to approach debriefing rating or analysis or reflection previously has been to have some kind of hypothetical, perfect debrief uh, vision and then match how clearly the debrief in front of us fits with that. And this just seems a much more rich, obviously much more challenging, but uh, way to approach things in terms of being able to, rather than going, did my debrief looked like somebody else's vision of what it should be? And rather, what were the things that I said and what did that lead to and what was the impact on the learners and what did they take away from that? And uh, that, that seemed very exciting to me. Um, so I was intrigued uh, that one of your primary hypotheses was regarding advocacy and inquiry and specifically its ability to uncover participant frames. Uh, and uh, part of that for me is I think I, I know you much from uh, your work uh, popularizing circular questioning, for example. And so I was curious, why was uh, AI so central to your exploration here? I think because, you know, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of that approach of, of, you know, what Jenny and colleagues, uh, Jenny Rudolph, um, I think it's, it's, a, it's such a powerful debriefing approach that I think it's the most respectful way to debrief, um, or to help teams debrief, um, to sort of combine your own point of view and while inquiring the learner's point of view and at the same time, you know, being really curious and hold the learners in high regard. So I'm just a huge fan of it. Uh, it makes sense to me. I believe it works, but you know, I would like to see it in the data. <laughs> and um, my colleague, uh, Julia Zeeland, who was the last author on, on this paper, she had ext an extreme amount of experience with observing surgical teams uh, in the OR. So she has spent um, hours and hours, uh, weeks and weeks in the OR just observing and, and coding what surgical teams are doing. And um, she also led most of the master's students. So she sort of oversaw the, the training for um, how we get this coding done. And once we had the data, we sat together. And we're like, okay, what are we focusing on? Because, you know, with 18,000 events, <laughs> what, what are we going to do with this? 
And then we uh, invited uh, Nala Lehmann-Willenbrock, who's also an author on this paper. She is one of the world's top meeting science, uh, scientists. And um, we, we had a debriefing on <laughs> what are we going to do with this. And as we sort of needed to find a way to wrap our head around the complexity of the data. So we thought, let's have a look at, let's test one thing that we know probably is going to be successful. And we found this. And then we, we tried to have a look at every kind of um, question type, but then notice doing data analysis, especially when we try to look at, you know, a systemic question or, or circular question type one versus B, there is no way that any human being can interpret this data in a, in a kind of <laughs> useful way. So we try to, or we, we had that challenge to reduce the complexity a little bit. That's why we combined some of the, uh, some of the behaviors that we saw, but that was part of our learning process, what to do with this huge amount of coded data and AI made natural sense uh, to us. And we, we found this pattern in the data and I'm, I'm so pleased about this. Uh, and we found other stuff as well that we did not expect. Yeah. So uh, I guess are you able to take us through, if, if you're a debriefer who's reading this and looking for some hard evidence on the choices they should make, uh, I mentioned briefly there was a, uh, a link between using advocacy and inquiry and uh, participants sharing their frames or their mental models. Uh, are you able to unpack that a little bit more and maybe some of the other more unexpected findings? Um, so we found, um, as you said, we found evidence that when people, when debriefers pair their, their point of view, so kind of share an observation, their own, share their point of view, and then inquire the learner's point of view, that that was, um, significantly, um, associated with the learner's sharing reflections. We also found that open-ended questions like what's on your mind or what were you thinking at this point in time? they triggered reflections, which makes total sense to me. We found that paraphrasing, sort of summing up what the learners shared in, in your own words, also helped, was, was also followed by the learners reflecting again and again. So this seems to be an effective um, debriefing behavior. What I found, um, what, I, what I was surprised at were, was that... Um, these so-called leading questions, like the guess what I'm thinking questions, these questions that are loaded with some sort of assumptions, they were also followed by um, the learners sharing reflections. There could be many reasons for that, maybe because we're all trained to, you know, we've, we're familiar with these kind of questions, so we just respond to them. Maybe the learners felt psychologically safe, but I, I don't know about this. It might be one of the study limitations that we just look at the immediate um behavior um, pattern. So I don't have any data on the long-term consequences, for example, that learners might get defensive with um, a certain amount of these, these uh, loaded questions. The other thing that struck me at really interesting was um, that appreciations, like, you know, complimenting the learners, when they were not followed by um, like an inquiry, they were not, uh, they did not trigger any kind of reflection. It's like they blocked the learners. They actually inhibited reflection. So when the, the debriefer said something nice, <laughs> like I, I'm really impressed about how you've accomplished this, 
it was like the learners were waiting for something to happen and they did not reflect on this. And I found that really interesting because we have that notion, you know, that there's the, the myth of the sandwich feedback. We, in our initial training was frequently a wolf. We have to be nice to the learners, but in our data, we found that there was no reflection going on. Uh, and I found that was interesting. We also found that uh, once the learners start reflecting, we can actually lean back a little bit as debriefers because the learners were really able to trigger a reflection among themselves. In particular, by uh, we coded this as um, sharing a personal anecdote, but in a sense, it's storytelling. So once they start telling each other stories, we could see a lot of reflection going on in a debriefing. And I thought that was kind of a beautiful result. Hmm. So if we're seeing learners starting to share stories with each other, then we know that we have hit a, a certain sweet spot in terms of them being able to reflect spontaneously with less input from ourselves. Would that be a fair inference? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, I mean, of course, I think we always need to some sort of um, like monitoring of what's being discussed in a debriefing. So if they start sharing stories about things that should be outside of the debriefing content, then I'd probably intervene. But if it's about the topic at hand, then I think yes. Uh, I noticed that you coded for humor. In, in in there as well in terms of the, the debriefer making a joke or uh, somebody laughing. And I was curious whether there are any associations with that that you noticed or whether that just didn't hit a particular statistical um, There were, yeah. So humor, I was totally interested in, in the function of humor because there's um, a lot of recent signs uh, coming up saying, you know, when is a team ready for, for humor? Uh, maybe it's too early. And um, in the end, we decided not to kind of go into detail because it was already a very, very complex study. But this is certainly something that I would do in the next study to just look at um, the function of humor at, at which point in time in a debriefing. So is it more at the end or more at the beginning where humor is effective? Um, we did find a few patterns, but in the end, they, they didn't really make that much sense that we tried to, you know, keep the paper simple. So we, we didn't publish this. Um, sure. Um, well, so if we move on to some pragmatic takeaways for our listeners and people who are reading the paper, uh, moving forward, how would you like to see or how would you hope to see people incorporate these findings into their practice? I think that's a great question. So what can we actually do with all this research? Hmm. Um, you know, I like that. Uh, I like the notion of us being mindful of cognitive load. So Michael Medeguchian is studying um, cognitive load in, in debriefing. And when he started up with doing this, I was always thinking, hmm, that's actually... That's so interesting. So how can we manage our cognitive load in debriefing? And it was one of the things that actually motivated, to, motivated us to 
to to sort of look at what's effective because then in faculty development courses or in yeah in our faculty development we could focus on these debriefing interventions or debriefing behaviors that we now know or at least there are some data um on that they are effective for example using um the debriefing with good judgment so combining advocacy with inquiry um using open ended questions paraphrasing initiating storytelling among learners. So these are things that I now do more of because I found some evidence in our data that they seem to work. Uh, I do even less of complementing the learners as a standalone technique. Um, in spite of our data, I try to be mindful of not using too many loaded questions or, or guess what I'm thinking questions. Um, so I think these are the things that we may take out of this just the awareness there are some effective debriefing interventions. Just use them. There are so many things we could do in debriefing, but why not try out them that seem to be effect effective? That's my take on this. Yeah, that makes Doesn't total make sense. sense. Can I ask you then, you mentioned you compliment less or compliment less without a follow-up. What to you, based on this data, is an effective way to validate learners but keep the conversation going or keep them reflecting? I think that's such a great question. It's actually one of the uh, one of the reviewers. Maybe you were one of the reviewers of the paper. <laughs> uh, came up with um, came up with this notion. So, what if compliments uh, uh, are not effective or in terms of immediate reflection, but have a, an important function on a more macro level in the conversation? So, for example, like like saying, "Okay, that's great. Let's now move on to the next topic." So you sort of wrap something up with a compliment and then you you sort of preview the next topic. And this made total sense. And actually we looked at a, at our data and we found that compliments were followed by previewing many times. So they seem to function as some kind of structuring work. Still, I think validating is for me like an, it's something else. It's like, I hear you or this makes sense. And I think it has a different and totally important um, a function in a debriefing, which really depends, I think, on what's going on in, de in a debriefing. Maybe then the outcome variable wouldn't necessarily be reflection. But uh, I think our data should not be interpreted in a way that's the only things that you're supposed to do in a debriefing. So we just really looked at what triggers immediate reflection? Um, but I don't know what are the immediate responses to validation or to normalizing or to, you know, any of the other really important debriefing tools that hasn't been studied yet, um, which I think would be a great next research idea. Uh, which segues into our last question very nicely. So, uh, you know, that was a huge amount of work. You mentioned sort of 18,000 events being coded. Uh, what's next for your research in terms of, are you going to look at that data with a different lens or a different question, or are you going to take that technique and explore other questions in other simulation debriefings? Hmm. I'm thinking I would probably, um, you know, study the impact with the same technique of other techniques, such as normalizing or validating. And yet I think, um, 
this whole model works in or was tested in like our Western world. So I don't know if in other cultures the same dynamics are running. I have no clue. This would be interesting to do. I'm also thinking more on a macro level in terms of debriefings. There's a lot of, how should we say that? Maybe it's like common sense. Some of the things that we do in debriefings, like do a reactions phase. Uh, everybody does this. And there are there is some evidence that hmm, <laughs> debriefings are less effective when there's a reactions phase. And I would like to know why that might be the case. And I think just exploring some of the uh, the things that we are doing in debriefings a little bit in more detail, maybe combining it with other methodological approaches um, to get some insights on, um, yeah, on our debriefing myths. <laughs> so what we take for granted, that's just the way we do it. And I think we do reactions because we have reasons for that, but we have to expose <laughs> ourselves to um, contrary findings. And I, I always think that makes it spicy. So I would, um, I'm definitely going to continue some sort of that research, maybe not to this extent. Uh, maybe I need uh, help from uh, people working with um, automated intelligence or other techniques to help us with the coding because it's just, it takes so much uh, man and woman power to do this. Yes, I can imagine. Uh, well, thank you so much for that. Uh, I guess from my perspective, you know, we've talked a lot about this black box of debriefing and the way that your team really worked at decoding that at a specific and analytical level to start breaking down those unconscious patterns between what we say and what impact that has on our learners. And it was so exciting to read uh, and so exciting to hear from you in terms of the way that can inform our choices, the, va the validation that advocacy and inquiry uh, is uh, valuable and useful technique that we now have empirical evidence to show that it can help learners explore their frames and reflect uh, and some eye-opening thoughts as well about uh, how we use compliments and whether they're transitions or whether they can actually be unintentional conversation closes uh, preemptively or, to, or prematurely um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we close up about the study or Anything else? No, I'm just, I like the way you have summarized this research because it's always so complex and the reviewers uh, wrote back so many times, this is far too complex. Nobody will ever be able to, <laughs> to, you know, do anything practical with this. And I'm just delighted <laughs> that Ben Simon is, is sort of taking something out of this. So thank oh, you. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad. And again, can I tell you, like, I guess my follow-up questions are things like, well, Great. If we know that compliments don't work for extending the conversation, you know, what choices can we make that will help us debrief success? Or how do we still help a team explore when they've clearly identified they've performed well? Um, how do we keep them digging in how to replicate that, uh, that success rather than just taking that validation and then just shutting down like they've achieved, you know, game over, you've, you've won the game. Uh, so no, it was fascinating to me and I really appreciate that this is extraordinarily hard work, uh, digging at this level into the DNA of these conversations in ways that we haven't really looked at before. So many, many thanks to you and your team. Thank you, Ben. Oh, no problem. Well, we will close it there, but thank you very much to Michaela for joining us tonight uh, and to our Simulcast listeners. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 